at. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, as we approach your throne, we're mindful of just how richly, richly you bless us, God, and, and we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here. We pray that you bless this time. Uh, as we search your word, we pray that your spirit will move through us, God, that you will guide us each day. Thank you so much for all that you do. Uh, keep everyone safe today, God, and, and just deliver them home safe. Uh, just help us to, to always uh, trust in you and to lean on you for, for your guidance and, and wisdom. And thank you for the blessings of this day. Not too much that we might become greedy and not too little that we might steal, but just enough for today, our daily bread. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I like that passage in Ephesians, so keep that marked. But we're going to actually be in Esther. And I, I want you to know that the, the little outline that you've got, I had intended that because it was a small group Sunday, that they could possibly use that outside and, and it would create further discussion in the small group setting. So understand that that's what that was designed for. And uh, ultimately, it's a... Uh, it's just one of those tools that would kind of further uh, discussion and things like that. So if you, you're, you're going through and you're waiting for me to give the definition of forgiveness, I'm not going to give it, okay? We're going to hopefully define that through the, the things that we're discussing this morning. But, but uh, just take that, use it as material, and hopefully it'll encourage us. Uh, I was reading through, and there was a great book, Choosing Forgiveness, Nancy Lee DeMoss. I uh, wrote this book several years ago, and it was a very challenging book. And in that book, one of the things that really stood out about this idea of, of choosing forgiveness is that it obviously is a choice, but then the flip side of that coin is, is unforgiveness. And so what happens when we don't choose to forgive? What happens is, is this root starts to, to be planted and, and grow inside of us. And so in her book, she goes through and talks a lot about this root of unforgiveness. And uh, I, I know that doesn't apply to anyone in here this morning, does it? Right? No roots of unforgiveness. And so anyway, I, I was going through and I'm, I'm thinking about a great story in this story here in Esther. Just a, this wonderful uh, novel. And in fact, Esther is, is the only book in the Bible that you'll find God not mentioned, but you'll see godly themes throughout it. Okay, it's one of those interesting kind of a, a novel, if you will, with a lot of twists and turns and, and plots going on. And it's just a powerful book. In fact, they've done movies based on it. Uh, I think A Night with the King, or I can't remember what the title of that movie is, but it's, it's one that, that was based on the Esther story. And so this morning, as you think about forgiveness and then we also couple that with this root of unforgiveness. There's a challenge that lingers there. And I want us to be thinking about that. We approach this story. Now, in this story, just setting the scene and setting the stage for us, we've got this king, Xerxes, the Medo-Persian Empire. He's in charge of this, this massive empire, and he's got this beautiful queen named Vashti. And so this king, as we enter into the story, he's having this awesome party. He's got everybody in town. They're, they've come together. They've gathered around. And so they've been going and partying for, for a few days now. And so he calls on his queen and he says, Queen Vashti, I want you to put on your crown and show up so you can entertain all of my honored dignitaries and guests. What did Vashti do? Well, and he called on her, one, because she's beautiful. But what did she choose to do? No, I'm not going. 
And so the King Xerxes, he's the most powerful king in the world at this time, and so he's frustrated by this. All right, so he gathers his highest ranking officials together and he says, she did not come when I called on her. And they said, King, this is very troubling. We've got to get a hold on this. You need to declare a decree because if the other women in the Medo-Persian Empire, if all these women start to see what the queen has done, they're going to follow suit. They're going to deny their human's wish, their human wishes, anyway, their man's wishes. When he calls on them, they're going to say no. And so you need to put it out there and say, when your husband calls on you, you respond. And so you've got to do it by cutting Vashti off. She can no longer be your queen. So he does that. And he sends the decree out. And he says, when a man calls on his wife, she will respond. And he puts the iron hand of the... You women would love that, right? Woo. Oh, well, King Xerxes, he, he put down the iron fist. Vashti's done. And now they have to start a new queen search. You've got to call together all the... The, the virgins, all the concubines, go through everyone and he's got to send them all because they can't just appear to the king so they have to go through a beautification process. Ladies, would you like this? They spend at least six months going through this beautification process. You got to be presentable to the king. They want you smelling good, looking right. Like, come on, man. But they go through and they, they have this, this woman, Esther. Now, Esther... She's an interesting story. She's been adopted by this guy, Mordecai. And Mordecai is a Jew. And so, it's not really good because the Jews are the slaves. And, and for them to excel to prominence within the Medo-Persian Empire, that was never going to happen. These are slaves. But Esther was very beautiful. And so, she was chosen. They put her through the beautification school. She shows up. And she pleases King Xerxes. He's overwhelmed by her beauty in such a way that he shows approval to her. And in fact, he decides, you know what? Out of all the women I've seen, you're the best. You're mine. He claims her and he makes her his queen. Now, subplot. You've got this guy, Haman, who is one of the officials in Xerxes' court. And Haman is one of these guys that he loves to be next to Xerxes. He likes to be in the know. And he's always kind of in his pocket. Hey, what do you got going on? You know, he's one of these kind of guys. And he loves to be honored by Xerxes. And in fact, Xerxes does the very thing. He elevates him above all of the other officials in the, in the country. And so at that, at that royal recognition, Haman can walk through a crowd and people are supposed to bow and pay homage to this man. Okay, so he leaves broad steps. He's, a, he's the big tall walker and he walks around with a broad rooster chest. I'm Haman. But this guy Mordecai, who is a Jew who sits at the gate, does not acknowledge him. And this, because he does not acknowledge the honor that's been paid to him, this sits wrong with Haman. And it starts this little, uh, inside of him. What is that guy? Why does he not pay me honor? He doesn't say anything to him. He just lets it fester inside of him. He lets it kind of start to, that little seed get planted. And so, 
He's going through, and you've got this subplot going on. Now, all the while, what's happened is the queen has gained favor. She's gained favor, and she's gained court. But Haman, he's also gaining favor. And so he's excelling in the country. And so you've got this, these two subplots, and they're starting to merge, or the plots are starting to merge with one another. Well, Haman, because of his disgust for Mordecai, finds out that he's a Jew. If you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter uh, 17 real quick. Let's look at this. Exodus chapter 17. Now, one of the things that really stands out in this subplot is that Haman is an Agagite. So he is a descendant of Ammon and the Amorites. Now, Exodus 17, keep that in mind. We've got Mordecai a Jew. Haman is a descendant of Ammon and the Amorites. So we've got this uh, guy right here. Uh, Exodus 17, verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And that's in Exodus. That's whenever they're, they're leaving uh, on their path, the, the Amalekites, they constantly attacked and waged war with the people of Israel. And God, God set it up that he's going to be blotting them out from generation to generation. And so you jump ahead to this story here in Esther, and what do you have? You have descendants that hate each other. They can't stand each other, okay? You've got Mordecai on the side of Israel as God's, part of God's chosen people, and he has a disdain for any son of Ammon. And that's where Haman falls. Goodness, we've never had any rivalries or any struggles with people, right? We've never come across folks that, ah, uh, I mean, this morning in class, we were talking about the Hetfields and the McCoys, and, and what did David say? He's like, yeah, the, the, the Hetfields are my descendants. I was like, oh, so you don't like Colt McCoy, do you? So anyway, we kind of threw that out there. We were just having a good time. But it's, it's feuds. We know of those things. They're not uncommon. Well, here's one of the biggest feuds in the Bible. And it is established by God. He says, I'm going to put a separation there. Well, Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. And so he goes before the king, and the king's granting him a request, and he says, you know what you do, king? You've got these people that live in your country. They try to take advantage of you, and they don't, they don't honor you. They don't do anything for you. You need to blot them out. In fact, just you need to write a decree and get rid of every single one of them. Get rid of them. Now, what's happened, though, is Mordecai has done something to solidify himself in the kingdom. You see, I, I said Mordecai sits at the gate. Let's look at this. Chapter 2, starting in, uh, in verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, and Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officials who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. 
But Mordecai found out about the plot, told Queen Esther, who turned, uh, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So Mordecai has done something to solidify himself within this country, within this empire. And he's kind of, he's kind of got himself in a good spot. But Haman gets this decree passed. And skipping over into to chapter 3, it says, uh, when, the, when Xerxes himself sealed uh, with his own ring, uh, verse 13 says, Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Mordecai hears the news of this, that all of his, all of his people are going to be destroyed and he tears his clothes. He covers himself in ashes and gets in sackcloth. And he's in mourning because now they're trying to annihilate him. And in turn... They're going to come after the queen. Remember, she's a Jew too. And so Esther hears from one of her assistants that this guy, Mordecai, her, her father, is, is sad and in mourning. And so she finds out what's going on and he says, they're going to kill us all. I don't know about you, but this is a huge thing. Haman's got this this seed of unforgiveness that's rooted itself inside of him. And it's driving him, right? It's driving him to want to lash out and cause pain. In that book, that Choosing Forgiveness, Nancy Lee DeMoss tells a story. And it's a powerful story. Uh, there's this woman, she's at the supermarket. And they're going through the checkout line and... Her daughter's like, Mom, you got some change. You have some change. No, uh, I don't. And you know, she's trying to write the check for, for the, the bill, and all of a sudden there's kind of a commotion. People are running to the door, and she looks around for her daughter. Her daughter's gone. So she immediately knows where she is. She runs out into the parking lot, heads over to her van, and sees her daughter there in a pool of blood. What had happened is, Two gang members were riding through the parking lot and on their, their initiation chose a woman that they were going to, to shoot and kill. They missed her and hit this lady's 12-year-old daughter and killed her. Well, they caught the two young men and in court, in court, they're, they're going through and the judge uh, asks, do you have anything? And, and this one inmate is just smiling. Whatever. Whatever. He, he's, he's just taking it. I think they were sentenced to 25 years prison. But this woman, I mean, she sees this man that, that killed her daughter, and this, this anger starts inside of her, this anger at that man. And so for years, it was at least six or seven years, her friends were, what's wrong? You, you don't look the same. Well, I, I just, I don't know. I'm just angry all the time. I, I, I don't know. 
I can't quite put my finger on it, but I'm just... And they said, well, you don't look well. And, and eventually, a new warden came out to the prison, and they opened up the prison, they opened up the unit so that people could come through, and then they were also starting some, some Bible study works out there. And, and one of her friends was going out, and she said, you should come with me. It would be good for you. You need to get out. This has been 10 years since her daughter had been killed by this man. And so she consents to going. They're walking with the warden, going, taking the, the tour of this new wing, when all of a sudden they said, hey, everybody get to the right p- prisoner coming through. And, and she comes face to face with the man that had killed her daughter. He said, in that moment, I looked in that man's eyes. And I had a choice to make. I could either hate him or continue to hate him for the rest of my life or I could choose to forgive him. What would we do in that situation? You see, she chose, she chose to forgive. It had been 10 years since her daughter had been killed, but she was being eaten up by this. And all of her anger and all of her hatred was being projected on a man that didn't feel a single thing. I mean, here he goes, he's walking by. He's just been incarcerated. And so she decided in that moment, going face to face with this man, she was going to forgive him. And then she was going to share the gospel with him. She was going to share why she forgave him. It's powerful. But you see what that root of unforgiveness was doing to her? She didn't cause it. She was just a a bystander to it and had to witness it. But that pain was real. But it wasn't doing anything to anybody else. It It was killing her. And Haman, in this story, is being eaten alive from the inside. He goes home and, in fact, and is, is complaining to his wife and his friends, there's this guy that won't honor me. And, and he's a Jew, and, and I've set it up, but it doesn't seem to, to phase him. I've got to get this guy. I've got to get him out of my life. And they said, why don't you set up a pole and have, him, have the king impale him on it? Have the king just kill him. Take him out. That sounds like a great idea. So he does. He established, sets up this pole outside of his house. He wants Mordecai dead. Wants him dead. Well, the queen, the queen takes a huge, bold step, knowing the pain of her father, knowing the pain of her people. She adorns herself and enters enters the throne room. Now this is taking her life in her own hands. Because if you went in to the king without an appointment, he can strike you down. But she took her life into her own hands, goes into the presence of Xerxes, he points his scepter, she walks in and touches it, and he says, Queen, what can I do for you? Anything is yours up to half of my kingdom. She says, can we have a feast? Can we have a banquet? Sure. Can we invite Haman? Sure. At that, they start to lay out the plans that have been put forth, and she says, King, 
We should honor Haman, right? Sure, okay, why, you know? They go through and they, they boost up this man. And so he's walking tall and proud and he's excited about it. And then it, his plot is exposed. And he's fearful at that moment. He's fearful, but the king wants another appointment because he can't sleep that night, goes through, breaks out his, his annals, and realizes that this guy Mordecai has never been thanked for exploding, exploiting this plot by his two gate guards. And so he calls in his officials and he says, did we do anything for Mordecai? No. No, we didn't do anything for him. Okay. So he calls uh, Haman. He wants an audience with Haman. Haman's already kind of high on there. He's had dinner with the queen. You know, he's, he's feeling good about himself. You know, he's got his plot going, but, you know, it's starting to, things are starting to unravel. But he, he's thinking, okay, well, the king wants to honor me again. He walks in. He says, what would you do for someone that you wanted to honor? Well, um, the only person he could think of was himself. Well, I think I'd, I'd put a royal robe on me, and, and then I'd, I would uh, put me on a great horse and have someone lead me through town. Because he's thinking he would be on the horse, and Mordecai would he'd choose Mordecai to lead it. He says, well, that's great. Well, we didn't do anything for Mordecai. When Mordecai figured out that they were trying to kill me, why don't you go get him, get my horse, get my robe, and you lead him through town. Oh, the ultimate twist. This guy, Haman, the guy that's the big, tall rooster that walks around, now this seed of, un of unforgiveness and hatred is boiling over. You could just see him. Uh, uh, he's leading his horse. Uh, hate this guy. Uh, you know, and he's going through town and he's doing this. Well, the queen exposes Haman further and says, O oh, king, that edict that he put forth, it's designed to kill all of my people. King, do you want me dead? No. Well, the man that, that has designed this plot, do you know that he is trying to kill my father and that he wants me dead? And right now at his house, he has a pole set up and he wants you to destroy him. And the biggest twist of all, that root of unforgiveness just eats Haman alive as he's impaled on the very pole that he had intended for Mordecai. The root of unforgiveness, once it takes hold, it can tear us apart. And it can eat us alive. But we have a choice. And we have a powerful choice. And there's a reason why. I've got this video I want to show you. Matt Chandler does this great little video and if if you will you can turn back over to Ephesians 1 I want you to watch this video our default position as strugglers is to believe that God's disappointed and frustrated that he simply is tolerating us the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 says, no, 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 no. Before the foundation of the earth was laid, 
He was going to adopt you, make you holy and blameless in His sight. So whether difficult days or good days, God's at work. God has not abandoned you in this difficult season. How amazing does that make our God that in our hypocrisy, He's long-suffering with us. In our inability to live out all that He would call us to, He continues to lavish upon us His grace. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So I love this word lavish, extravagant, plentiful, over the top. And so now when the Bible's talking about forgiveness, it's saying that His grace in forgiveness is lavish, like it's too much, like it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous amount, right? It's, it's, it's weight, it's over the top. It's out of control. Man and woman of God, in Christ but struggling, God does not regret saving you. He doesn't regret it. You haven't surprised Him. You cannot surprise Him. God is not watching where you are now, watching how you've struggled this week, watching how you stumble and fall, and regretting the decision to pay the price for you in full. You have no sin past present and future that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. None. This means that your salvation wasn't just a past event alone, but that Christ even now is continuing to save you. He didn't forgive your past sins and now leaving it up to you to conquer present and future sins, which means it doesn't matter how you came in here. It means God can rescue. It means God can save. And it means for those of us who are in Christ, you do not disgust him. You do not discuss it. You don't know what I struggle with and how deplorable it is. Um, I know that Jesus would say that he paid the bill in full, and so what you're saying is nonsense. That is the grace with which he lavished on us in his forgiveness. It's powerful, right? The grace of God that was lavished upon us when God forgave us. So why do we choose to not forgive others? When we've shown, we've been shown ultimately that grace and that mercy in our lives that, that cleanses us, that gives us new life. How? How can we let that root grow? How? When the only person that it's affecting is us. The only person that it's killing is us. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Amen. 
Christ going to the cross showed us the ultimate, ultimate gift. Salvation. Forgiveness. And grace. If we are not, as Christ followers, living that standard of forgiveness in our lives, what are we living? We're called to so much more. And if you're struggling, if you're sitting there and this root of unforgiveness has grown and it's eating you alive, we want you to know that there's so much more, that this life offers so much more than that anger and hatred. Jesus Christ gave his life. This water is set up here so that we could give our lives. We can make that commitment, form that covenant relationship with God that says, my life is new, my life has changed. I'm going to cut that out. If you don't have that relationship, man, we'd love to, to sit down and talk with you, study, and get there. But if you do have that relationship and you've struggled, then we'd love to sit and pray with you. Because truly... It's a choice whether we choose forgiveness or not. Just like we choose to be baptized or not. Just like we choose what we do in this life. We have to choose to forgive others. But know that the ultimate choice was made for us. When Jesus Christ gave his life. Choosing to heal us and have us forever. If you need anything, I know that Daryl's got a song. For us, we'd like to invite you to come with anything that you have as we stand and sing. Just as I Yeah.